All right, we're going to keep going with the service. I want to introduce myself. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. For those of you watching at home with us, uh, welcome. Glad you uh, joined us this morning online. Um, We are continuing on uh, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in chapter 11 today, chapter 11. And within 1 Corinthians, we've been breaking the book down into these kind of mini-series just so we can keep the theme and the topic kind of in front of us clearly. And we find ourselves in the, in the part of the letter where, he, where Paul's addressing worship. So when the, the brothers and sisters in Christ come together, like this is, would be an example of that, um, and uh, he has some things to say to the church about how we do things like we're doing today. And so let me read chapter 11, starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and I just continue to love this book where just things seem so relevant, and um, things, uh, there, there are places, even when texts are hard, we see where you're going with your argument, and we, we, we love that. And uh, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. We don't have to make the Bible uh, current. The things you speak about in your word are current, and they apply to, to our lives. And so I'm thankful for that. And I pray as we walk through this passage today, you'll, you'll allow us to put ourselves under your word, and that we would humbly... Um, try to figure out what it, it says, what it means, how it applies to our life, and that you would change our minds and our hearts and the way we uh, live when we leave this place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, Scott Barchi writes this quote. <clears throat> says, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basis in the full, first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. 
being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of the friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So meals are important. And the meal we're going to talk about today is the most important meal, especially for the body of Christ. Even in the Western society today, um, the, the, we, don't, we don't do meals super well. If y'all spent any time in other countries outside of North America or Europe, meals are much more um, important. They're weightier. They mean more. You usually take your time. You're not rushed through meals like we tend to do in our country. But there's still a, 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 a slight shred of significance, and I think we all feel it when it comes to meals. Here's another quote by Alexander Shemimon. He says, Centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence. A meal is still a rite, the last natural sacrament of family and friendship. So what he's saying here, even in the midst of this kind of rationalistic Western culture where we, we tend not to think through the transcendence of things. We want things that, 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 that mean something, that are concrete. We don't have time a lot in our culture for, for spirituality and some of these types of things. He's still saying there's still a little bit of a, of a shred when we get together and we break bread, we eat together, there's something special there. There's still some bit of reverence there. Even our culture and everything about it is pushing us to make uh, meals just, just fuel for the body. Or when I'm hungry, it's just, a, it's just something I put in my mouth to make these feelings of hunger go away. That's seeing food as utilitarian. What he's saying here is, is, is that's really how most of our culture handles food. However, there's still something special about sitting down and sharing a meal together. That's why at weddings and parties and birthdays, usually there's food involved. There's something kind of deeper that happens when you introduce food into a group of people, okay? And that's what he is pointing out there. Um, so today, we are going to talk about food, a meal, and more spe most specifically, the Lord's Supper. Um, so why do we call it the Lord's Supper? Or, or um, other people can call it different things as well. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, some traditions call it the Eucharist. So Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist mostly mean the same thing. In our church, we typically say the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, the Lord's Supper was an ordinance or a sac is a sacrament of the church, which means that Jesus gave baptism and Lord's Supper to the church to continue to do. And Jesus instituted those things. So when we say Lord's Supper, communion is an ordinance or a sacrament, that's what we are, are meeting. And by the way, a quick plug for baptism. Um, if you want to get baptized or need to get baptized, that's really important um, for us as a church. And so um, the class is next week. So you can, if you know, hey, I need to get baptized, you can take out your phone right now, go to the events page, sign up for that class to be baptized. We really want to, this is, we do this twice a year and we really want you to, to catch it when it comes, okay? Um, so yeah, connected with baptism and the fact that they're both ordinances or sacraments. Jesus instituted it in the gospels we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, an occasion where Jesus sits down before he was to go to the cross and says, this is, this is basically Lord's Supper. And this was a very uh, kind of ritualistic thing that Jesus did. And he said to continue to do this, continue to um, observe the Lord's Supper in this way. 
There's possible Old Testament connections to the Lord's Supper in Exodus and Deuteronomy, where God's people sit down and they, they share kind of this formal meal and, and kind of remember the grace and mercy of God as they do that. Um, so I'm going to lay out three primary things we're going to look at today in this passage, okay? Three primary things. One, the importance of what the Lord's Supper communicates about our relationship with others. Okay, so the Lord's Supper is not just a vertical thing between us and God. It impacts how we view others, and we'll see that in this passage. That's number one. Number two, how do we see the gospel clearly in the Lord's Supper? That's probably not going to be super unfamiliar to you since if you've been here for any length of time, because we do this every week, and we preach the gospel in that space every week. Number three, um, and really by extension of the Lord's Supper, um, how important are the eating of meals are for biblical community? I want to kind of put that back in front of us and just the call that we need to eat meals together as the body of Christ. So let's jump into the the text here. Verse 17, Paul starts off strong and he is not happy. He says, but in the following instructions, so he's kind of separating it from what he said before that we looked at last week. He's saying, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I'm not saying a lot of good things about you. He's saying, according to what I'm about to say. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's like getting together is usually a really good thing, right? But you're making it, you might as well not even get together, Paul's saying. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And if we, remember, if we spend any time in this book, and we've seen going through this book, like unity, division is something Paul comes, comes back to over and over and over again. And now we're in chapter 11 of this book, and yet again, it's coming up. He's saying, I, I see the disunity here. He says, I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, So the factions here, this word factions could also mean heresies. Um, so in a sense, it's, he's not talking about doctrinal heresies where um, it's maybe difference of belief. What he's saying, these are like heresies of ethics. These are, these are heresies of the way you treat people. Okay, So there's a, there's a big problem here. Now, here's what's happening. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And, and they would have thought, well, yes, it is. That's, why we're, that's, that's what we do when we get together. But he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Um, and so here, here's the context for what's happening here. Um, the, the houses, uh, churches would meet in, in homes and in buildings in, in this time. And probably in this context, Paul's talking about a home. And typically in a home that when you came together, you would meet in the, 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 the biggest room, the most common room, and typically you could pull a table out there, put seats in there. Most normal houses, not, not unlike ours, would fit from anywhere 10 to 20 people in the common room, and they usually would set up tables in this room and have um, a big feast. They called it agape meal. So this isn't the Lord's Supper, but this was a meal when they got together to, 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 on Sunday nights to, 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 to spend time in fellowship together as a family. Um, probably um, there was teaching done in this context as well. But if you just think of the house, so you have this major, this, this big room, and they would party, they would bring food, they would, they would just have a great time together. And the, the, um, the wealthier people would oftentimes arrive earlier. They would arrive earlier because they had the type of jobs to get off work sooner. So they would arrive there, and everyone would bring stuff. They would bring food. They would bring wine to pitch into this meal they were having. So the, the wealthier people would show up, um, and they would begin eating. They would begin eating the food that they brought, and they would begin drinking the wine in that meal. 
and they would, they would, they would be so, so carried away with their hunger and just kind of this, this, this party atmosphere that they would eat all the food. And they would drink so much wine that they would become drunk, which is what the scripture says here. And by the time that the other kind of class of people came, the ones that were more of middle class, working jobs, that they, had, they, they were probably coming in a little bit later, they were out. And so it seems like they were arriving later into the context here. And, they, and imagine showing up and all of the good food being gone, all of the wine being gone. These people who were inebriated, drunk, um, you kind of walk in and, and there's, there's nothing left. There's nothing there. And this, this, this uh, meal preceded communion. So there was this kind of this break after they, 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 they had a good time together. They would then move kind of to a different context oftentimes or clear the table and then set up the table for communion. And Lord's Supper, they would get together. When they get together, they would take this. And that would shift more into the communion time, okay? Um, and so what Paul's saying here is, do you think you're actually taking communion? Do you think when you come together after this meal, the way you've treated other people, you now want to move on to communion, and you, you completely miss the point? The thing that communion's supposed to teach, that we're together, we're unified, we're all in need of this, and we want everybody welcome to the table, you're gonna, these things are going to come out of your mouth and you're going to pray these things after the last couple of hours where you've been selfish with your food and the wine and you're just making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And this is why Paul is so angry here. Because the, their behavior at this agape meal leading into the Lord's Supper has, is, is, is so unchristlike. He's saying, how can you even sit down and remember the gospel of Jesus after treating food and wine in this way and treating your other brothers and sisters, maybe those who came in late or those who are maybe from a, a lower class in society? Let's continue on. Verse 21. He continues to shed light on this. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One, is, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, which is the people of God, right? The church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Or shall, should I give you a pat on the back for this? He says, no, I'm not going to do it, right? And so this is what Paul is so worked up about. He's challenging how, how, how they... Um, kind of handle this social environment with their other brothers and sisters around. So the people that weren't as wealthy, that didn't have as much, were ending up with no wine and probably table scraps for dinner. Because the people that are wealthy, the people that have a lot, the people that showed up early, you're not loving your fellow brothers and sisters. It's not happening. And so they were, they, were, they were doing something at this meal and then communicating something completely different when they sat down to um, take the Lord's Supper. So here's the first thing we learned from Paul. The Lord's Supper, communion, when we take it, communicates a lot about how we treat others, about our relationship with, with others. It's not just a vertical thing. It is a horizontal thing. It can reveal how we truly see people around us. And that's why it's important to kind of bring this other meal into it as well, because the way we do Lord's Supper here, you know, we're standing up, it's pretty quick, it's not in the context of a meal, it's not in the context of a home. So I think you can miss some of this, so that's why I want to continue to, to talk about how we treat people and how we handle each other around just a meal, just when we get together, when we break bread together, when we sit down together, 
should be a place of hospitality, a place of grace, a place of, a place of mercy, looking for ways to sacrifice for the sake of others. That is the part of, uh, part of the table. And especially in the city of Corinth, um, again, big city, metropolitan city, um, a lot of uh, intellectual people, wealthy people, beautiful people, um, having a dinner party was uh, something that you would do to kind of be around people of the same class as you. Wealthier people would do it, poor would people, people would do it, but they wouldn't be together when they did it. They would kind of be doing their own things. You could see like these stark social class differences when you had these meals and people ate together in Corinth. And once again, Paul's like, you're different, church. You're different than that. We don't want to look like the world. We don't want to act like the world when we come together to eat. The Lord's Supper in particular was something totally different. It was meant to, to create and keep and show this different kind of community, this upside-down community where the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that we look to our other people's interests and not just to our own interests. And that meal leading up to communion in this scenario, Paul, that's why he's so mad. He's saying, you look like the city around us. You look like the culture here, the way you are all going after the good food and all getting yours, and you're kind of getting in line first so you can get the good stuff saying, may it not be. That is not the way uh, we should handle things as the church. Now, just think about food and meals for a second. If those of you, uh, maybe we have a few high school students in here, um, but you could think back to your time in high school, but think of a high school lunchroom, right? The high school lunchroom kind of dynamic. Um, who's sitting with who, right? You have these kind of groups of people emerge, and, and at least when, when I was in high school and even junior high to some degree, it was a big deal, like sitting who you sat with when you ate meals in school was kind of a big deal. You would think about it. You would stress about it. You would, it, kind of, it gave you the sense of being in or, or the sense of being out. But if you just think about this and observe this, who's sitting with who? who? Who are the people who have people all around them? Who's alone? Maybe this plays out in your workplaces as well. When, if you have an environment where you do lunch um, in the workplace together, maybe like in a break room or something, who's sitting with who? What's happening? What are the dynamics there? Again, meals reveal what we think about God and what we think about others. So I just encourage you to begin paying attention to meals um, in these kind of environments. What's happening there? Um, think about when we get hungry, right? Like we, we tend to not think of other people when we're hungry, right? Like in our home, like that's one of the first things we ask each other. Are we is somebody hungry? Because we're like snappy at each other right now, right? Who's hungry? Let's just put some food in somebody to make us happy, right? So we know hunger produces anger and frustration. We can get irritable when we're hungry. Okay, so, so you take that and then you try, to fi- you try to get yours, right? I need to make this go away, so I'm going to be looking for some food. I'm going to get mine, which, again, makes you the center of the world. You begin not to think about people around you, what they need. You just need the hunger pains to go away. So this often makes things even worse. And maybe this was the case in Corinth, right? They showed up, and they were hungry. Maybe they hadn't ate all day. And they showed up, and there was this good food and wine sitting out there, and said, I'm going to go for it because I'm hungry right now. But again, they weren't thinking about anything, anybody else. This has a, a, a kind of an undercurrent of hosp- the, the idea of hospitality. 
Um, this idea of making room for the stranger. When we see hospitality in the scriptures, it's, it's the ability to make room for the, the, the sojourner or the stranger. It's not necessarily the people that you already hang around anyway, that you already are like you. That's really usually not the context that hospitality uses. It's actually showing um, grace and mercy, welcoming in those who aren't like you, those who maybe need community, need a family. That's like the biblical idea of hospitality. Maybe when you show up and you're doing kind of a buffet style someplace, are you one of the first ones to get in line? Make sure you get your food. Or do you hang back and let others go first? To even think about those contexts as well. Are you aware who's going first? Who's last? Who, is there enough stuff left in the meal for everyone to eat and everyone to get kind of enough in the same amount? These are the things kind of, I think, taking what Paul's saying and bringing them over into our culture. Listen to Stephen um, in his commentary talk about um, the dinner table. The dinner table is a place where community is created and sustained. The dinner table is a place where hospitality is extended and conversation experienced. It is also a place where communal dysfunction or breakdown is seen and felt. Meals carry values. They tell stories about the people who have prepared them, the people who partake of them, and even about the people who are excluded from the meal. Okay, So something to think about there. Now, let's move on to the next kind of section of scripture. Paul really gets in here to what is communion? Like, what are we doing when we do communion? And he quotes Jesus to kind of to help us understand this. Verse 23, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul here is taking something that Jesus, again, instituted there uh, the night before he was to go to the cross and be arrested. Um, and so um, what's happening here at the Lord's Supper? Have you, like, what, what, I think that's important for us to ask. We do this every week. Um, what is happening when we actually um, take the Lord's Supper? And I want to quickly go through uh, the three major views of communion or the Lord's Supper, because I think this is helpful and something we just haven't touched on here at the church. So I'm going to walk through these quick. I could spend a lot of time talking about the historical um, reasons why these things are true. But here are the three categories, and they'll be up on the screen. The first one um, is something called transubstantiation. Big word, but you'll understand it here in a second. This is uh, the Roman Catholic view, okay? And this is kind of on, an, on, a, on a spectrum. Um, and this is broad brushing, um, but one of the th primary things that uh, a Roman Catholic thinks is happening at communion is that it's the, the, the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus, like physically and kind of spiritually as well, like when you eat the bread, you're actually eating Christ's body in some way. And when you take communion, when you do communion, um, you're actually um, kind of, Jesus is being crucified again and again and again and again. And that's, that's why salvation is tied to communion to some degree in the Catholic Church. And you can hear in the word transubstantiation, it's trans meaning to change, right? And then substance, right, to change substances. And that's why you get that word. So the, these elements, I keep pointing down here because we have a kind of an object lesson here. I put it out there. But so the, the elements are actually changing into the body and blood of Jesus. Even though you don't see it change, 
in some spiritual way, it does that, okay? Kind of moving further on the, the spectrum, or maybe closer, I should say, to what we believe would be the um, in with an under view. Um, it's another, the, another word for it's consubstantiation. So this is a Lutheran view. This is a, a view that Martin, Martin Luther popularized um, around the Reformation. And this is closest to the Roman Catholic view. And they don't want, they, the Lutherans didn't want to say that you're actually crucifying Christ's body over and over again, but they wanted to hold on to a lot of the, that view. So what they said is that Christ's body, again, in, in some spiritual way, is in, with, and under the elements, right? So as much as Christ could be in them without it being Jesus itself, that's what we believe. And in all, these, in all these views, there's places in the scripture where you can go a verse here, a verse there. We can say, oh, this is what that means. This is where these come from. And, and that consubstantiation word, is, it's, it's con is with, so with um, substance. So Jesus is with the substances, okay? And the last one um, is really the rest of Protestantism. The Lutheran has some other um, groups that it would fit into that, but the rest of Protestantism has a symbolic slash spiritual view of the elements. And so there's kind of two pieces to that. And, and I think certain uh, groups of churches or denominations emphasize one over the other. So in some way, this is a symbol. It's a memorial of we, we, we purely remember. Like when we get together, we remember. When we see this, we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And that is true. Um, but I'm one that also likes to, to emphasize the spiritual element. I do think something is... Something is happening spiritually when we take communion as a body. If we're united by one spirit, this is an ordinance. Jesus said, hey, do this as often, do this often until I come back, right? Jesus wants us to continue to do communion. I think there's a heightened sense of, of, of the Holy Spirit's activity when we do this. It's, again, it's unexplainable. It's not super concrete. But I think if you look through all the scriptures, I think, so I would say that what we believe is a spiritual symbolic view of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus, Jesus' spirit is, is here and active when we are taking communion. Okay, so the main part for us that I want to emphasize is it is this is an important thing. Oftentimes, because we don't want to like get into the, the Catholic view of it, we say, oh, this is just a symbol, or this is just this or that. No, this is a major thing. This is a huge thing. This is why we do it every week here. It's a spiritual thing, it's a deep thing. It it's formative. It can change us when we do it week after week after week, because it points to the gospel. So this is a very important thing that we do, but we don't find ourselves in um, the Roman Catholic or the Lutheran view, okay? So I wish I could nerd out a lot more on that, but I wanted to take a side note and just say, here are the three primary views that um, churches, how churches see communion or Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, okay? So what are we receiving, okay? And I like to put in those terms, what are we receiving when we take the Lord's Supper? Here's a quick list. We are reminded of Christ's death for us. Um, we receive benefits, and we were reminded and, and experienced the benefits and participation of Christ's death. We receive spiritual nourishment. We're practicing our unity that we have in Christ. We receive Christ's affirming love for us. That's why we always talk about we should receive the love of, love of God in communion. That's one of the things we should feel in communion is the love that God has for his children. And the last thing, we, we affirm our faith in Christ. It's a chance every week, that kind of that confidence that our, our faith is affirmed when we leave this place every week. Who should participate, right? Number one, um, 
followers of Jesus, right? Only followers of Jesus should take communion because it's a spiritual thing. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you take communion, you're basically participating in something that you don't believe to some degree, and it's just not a part of your identity. So that's why we say that that's, that's not, this is only for people who consider themselves followers of Jesus. Now, I think ideally, um, it, it would be a baptized believer that takes communion. I think baptism should, for the most part, precede um, communion, but we're not super strong on that because we don't have um, we don't necessarily do baptisms every week. If we did baptisms every week, then we may require that before you take communion. But oftentimes, baptized should be done before taking communion. And the last thing, um, people, you should examine yourselves, and we're going to see that here in a second. There's a time of examination that should happen before you take communion. This is what we're going to get to now. Um, so how's the gospel clearly seen in this? Well, it re- represents the story of Jesus. If you think about Jesus' ministry, he is going, going to, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal in much of his ministry. I mean, we often don't see that, but food and meals are so present in the life of Jesus. And they're really present in the whole, um, in the whole Bible as well. Um, we see um, there, there are quotes where it says, Jesus came eating and drinking. Right, So even how he was going about his life, people thought, that guy's always eating and drinking. Or he, he eats, or he's called a glutton and a drunkard, right? Two terms that are connected with food and drink, right? He's a glutton and a drunkard. He sits around and hangs out with sinners, tax collectors. That was kind of how the religious leaders would throw out labels on Jesus. So even the, ta- the, the Pharisees saw Jesus always eating with people, right? Food was a part of Jesus' life. We see in the Garden of Eden, uh, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Tree with fruit. The serpent, Genesis 3, uses food to, to tempt Adam and Eve. You have the festivals. Um, you have the Passover meal. You have the parties. Jesus' life, like, like I just mentioned. You have the, the banquets and, and the, the meal where he turned the, the water uh, into wine, right? You have this come up all throughout the scriptures, and everything ends for us in our faith with a wedding supper, Right? Right? It, it, this, this whole thing ends, and we continue on into eternity um, with Jesus at a wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation calls it. So it begins with food in Genesis there with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it ends with a banquet with a bunch of food on the table in Revelation. So there's all these spiritual realities happening when we look at communion, when we take communion. And the most important thing, and Jesus refers to it, is this idea of the new covenant. It's what people at that time were looking forward to, covenant, an agreement between God and his people in the scriptures. That's what a covenant is. But this was a new covenant when Jesus would return, when Jesus would come back, when Jesus would set up his rule and reign on earth. Um, This is the one that people knew that they were waiting for, where God would send his suffering servant to die for sinners to reconcile them back to God. This was a good one, right? They, They were waiting for this one. When is this new covenant going to happen? And Jesus says, this is a sign of the new covenant. This is to be, you're to think about and, and have hope in the new covenant when you take communion. So when God's law wouldn't be written on people's hearts anymore, I mean, not on tablets of stone, but would be written on people's hearts in the new covenant. And so this should, remember, this should remind us week after week that we are all invited to this table to take communion and we don't belong at the table. We really don't belong at this table, but we are nonetheless invited to it. And it's only through grace by faith that we're to dine and to meet at this table with other people who don't deserve to be there as well. So when we look to the left and to our right with people taking communion with us, there's this we identify with each other. Yeah, I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. You know what? We're a mess, 
But gosh, we, we serve someone who loves us and redeems us and changes us and shows us grace and his mercy. This is what communion should be about. This is what we should think about. This makes us family, a, a messy, misfit family, and radically changes the way we treat one another. You can start to see why Paul was so frustrated, so angry with how the Corinthians were treating one another in this context. It's like every week we need to remember that we're like the prodigal son whose father's welcoming him back, throwing a party, killing the fattened calf, putting the robe on him, inviting him into the party. Maybe we come in here with our head down. Maybe we come in here scared, thinking, oh, what did I do this week? God's gonna, uh, the father's going to punish me. The father's going to hate me. I've ruined everything the father's given me. And no, the father looks at the son, runs to embrace him, and brings him into the party. That we should feel like the prodigals every time we're together. Now, imagine the prodigal. He gets invited into the party. How, how is he going to treat the people who are not in the party? He's going to be like, come on in. Come, 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 come to this party. Like, I got my dad throw this big, threw this big party for me. Yeah, I don't, you, you don't deserve to be here, but neither do I. I'm a, I'm a failure, but my dad invited me in. Come on in. And the prodigal son can do that if you can imagine him doing that because he's gotten the the approval of the father. He doesn't need to go first in line. He doesn't need to get his. He can sacrifice for the sake of others because he's found what he needs in the father. So he can can cast a wide net to invite people to the party. He'd be looking for ways to sacrifice on others' behalf. So when we come to the table, when we come to take communion, we can remember who we are in Christ And what made this possible and allow that to change the way we view other people? Let's keep going. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, really quickly, I don't spend a lot of time on this, but this is what what I want to make sure we understand what this means. This doesn't mean when he talks about discerning the body, reflecting, not taking it in an unworthy manner, he's not talking about the person ourselves, right? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are worthy to sit at this table and take take the, the bread and wine. You are worthy because of that. Now, there are situations in our lives things we do that we may not be taking it in a worthy manner. And this could be um, um, unrepentant sin, right? This could be sin that you're hiding, that you may not, that you just don't think you need need to repent for. You, You don't need God's grace for this particular sin, so you're not being honest with yourself when you come to take communion. This could mean having a having conflict or bitterness towards another brother or sister in Christ. And you could just feel it inside of you. This could be the way you're treating other brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying, you're welcome at the table. But before you come to the table, reflect. Make sure there's nothing, you're, you're not doing anything like the first Corinthians were doing, treating people this way. Um, and then come to the table with a, with a humble and repentant heart, saying, God, I need you. I'm broken. I'm needy. I trust that your grace and mercy are enough for me. And Come. Okay, so that's what, that's what beats. And then when he says uh, body, um, without discerning the body, it's not your own body here. It's the body of Christ. That's the context. Right? He's talking about how we treat each other as brothers and sisters. So it's not discerning your own body. It's discerning the body, the other brothers and sisters that make up the church. So you should be asking questions. How, do, how are we loving one another? How am I sacrificing for one another? 
How am I, am I, am I loving everybody in the church um, to a certain degree? Am I, am I preserving unity? Those are the reflective questions that you should repent of before you come to take um, the Lord's Supper. If you have that sin and you're sorrowful and you're repentant and you just can't seem to care, please come. Come and take communion. You need this. You need God's grace and mercy found in the table to, to, to help you fight that sin. But there's that humble and repentant and contrite heart that um, is, is going on inside of you to be able to come to that. So meals carry values. They tell stories about who is there and those who are included and excluded. We need to remember that. We should live distinct from this culture and how we handle food. Communion, right? It's, it's common union. Two words put together. Like we're with one another and we have this union together. Common bread, common cup, visual representation of the fact that these common divisions and disunities of the world are overcome in our relationship with Christ. Imagine who was there at the table. You had tax collectors and zealots, two people who hated one another, but both people, kinds of people, were a member of Jesus's early discipleship team, right? You had Judas, the traitor, was there eating, breaking bread with the disciples. They would have never hung out with them in the same circles outside of this specific group where Jesus was the center in the head. Listen to Don Carson quote here about this. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, and anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Okay, So when we come together, we can begin thinking about this. Remembering that there's a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect. We can begin asking the questions, who won't you invite to your table? Who are you afraid to invite over for dinner? Who are you will you refuse to share a meal with? Be reflecting on these and asking these hard, honest questions. We get 21 meals, give or take for some people, right? That we get to practice this during the week. We come every week to take communion here. So it's like a practice as we share meals with one another and other people throughout the week. Last two verses, then we'll, we'll wrap up. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's the, that's the, that's the straightforward command. Wait. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Like, eat before you come. Like, if you're so hungry that you're going like, to take other people's food when you get there, just eat before you come. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. You won't be pronouncing judgment on yourself for what you're doing. About the other things, I give directions when I come. And he's kind of transitioning to next week. Um, So Paul wants the church in Corinth to be able to come together and enjoy God's gifts, like good food, good wine, in an orderly way. It should not be at the expense of other people. Back to that whole freedom thing we've been talking to a lot. He says, if that's you, stay home. It's better for you not to come. You're going to get drunk and take the good food first, stay home. You don't need to be here. It's just going to make things worse. Now, two points of application. Number one, when we come and take communion, we remember Jesus, number one. We remember the gospel. And it's not just in a symbolic way. We're not just remembering the gospel. We're experiencing the gospel again when we take communion. So don't miss that. Um, There's this heightened spiritual presence when we do this. And we do this as a family, not as individuals. We do take it as an individual, I get that, but we're doing it at the same time together in this particular church. And then the second thing, I would say, have meals together. Have meals together. Um, Have everybody contribute. People bring food. Share the table. 
Have people um, prepare. Maybe you come together to prepare the food and eat the food. Ask a few people to stay to clean up after you, clean up after the dinner. Right? Make more. Have more family meals. Um, the best way to do this is through your missional community. Um, if you're not in a missional community, get in a missional community, and you can experience these kinds of meals. Those of you who've been around the church for a while, if you see someone in church that you don't recognize, you haven't talked to in a while, have them over for dinner. Like This is the way we practice this um, and live this out during the week. And I'll push back a little bit. I, I know that um, in our time um, it, with COVID and the pandemic, this has been really hard, right? Um, and, and I've heard a lot like, um, hey, church, we can just do church online, right? There's no difference between doing church online and, and coming together as a church. Why aren't we rushing back to, to, together as a church? And, and there's some way, I get that. Like I get that, yeah, you can, we have technology, we can do some things for a short period of time. But it's really, real, really hard to replace eating together. So if, if you guys are feeling like lonely or feeling like I miss people, it's probably because you haven't broken bread with people. It's probably because you're not experiencing eyeball to eyeball community through meals. So whenever things, and I'm praying that we're on the backside of this and things to begin opening up and whatever normal looks like, I'm, I'm thinking that's going to happen. So I'm not saying now push to do this, but I want you to feel the ache of not being around brothers and sisters around a table because you cannot replace it. You can't replace it at home by yourself. It's just not going to be replaced. So that is something we have missed. I would say even miss more than potentially canceling Sunday services because of technology. Doing this on Zoom feels awkward, okay? Like having a meal together on Zoom. I don't know if y'all have tried that. Not... Not pleasant, right? Pretty awkward, right? So um, we need to embrace this, and, and really, once things get back, we need to go hard after spending time around tables together. Let's pray. Father, again, I'm thankful for, um, like today, when we're talking about food, we all think about food, maybe thinking about food now. A lot of us ate food before we came. We'll eat food when we leave here. I'm thankful that food and meals are such an important part. If we just kind of open our eyes to the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, food is there. Um, we kind of see it in the background, but it's, it's at the forefront. Meals are important, which is why I think Jesus took, um, as he was, I'm sure, thinking about with God and the Trinity, what, what, what way can I um, kind of cause the church to remember the gospel for until I return? How should we do that? Well, let's do, it. let's do it around food. Let's do it around a meal. Let's engage all five senses. Let's have people taste things. Um, and so I, I'm thankful that in your providence, in your wisdom, we get to remember you with food that engages all of the senses. And it's not, it's not extravagant food. In your day and age, this was common. Wine and bread were pretty easy to find in, in 2,000 years ago. So we're thankful that common people eat common food when they come together to observe communion. Help us as we move into time of communion. Help us remember you and remember our brothers and sisters. Amen.